You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Hello and welcome to Queering the Air, an hour of critically engaged queer commentary and music. I'm your host for the next hour, Iris. Thanks to Encyclopedia for the previous hour of broadcasting. You're tuned into 3CR Community Radio, 855am on your AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au, on digital radio and later on demand and podcasted. I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples of the Kulin Nations, whose land this show is produced on. Indigenous sovereignty was never ceded and resistance led by First Nations people against genocide and colonisation is ongoing across so-called Australia. Stay tuned to hear a conversation I had with Petra Blagojevich about why violence occurs in queer relationships, the politics of transformation beyond not-for-profits, Karen and Pandemic, Mutual Aid Shoutouts, and more. So I'm joined on Queering's Year with Petra Bogovic. And this program is going to cover a wide range of topics from violence and LGBTIQ plus relationships to critiques of the not-for-profit sector in terms of limitations around that for transformative politics to stuff around community and self-care and potentially more could you introduce yourself for listeners me yes hi i'm petra blagojevich um i am i um i'm a queer and trans person um who is a settler here i came to so-called australia um uh from Back then it was Yugoslavia when I was like three because there was a war that was starting there. Um, and I do a bunch of stuff at the moment. Um, I do like work in the LGBTQ family violence space. Um, I've been involved with Undercurrent um, who do like the workshops in schools and other types of like workshops around um relationships and and um yeah addressing and challenging violence and other stuff and um i also am doing some like when i can volunteer work doing other mutual aid with irl info shop and yeah also am in the process of moving house that's about it i like to cook yeah nice thanks petra and the time of this recording is a bit before um, when you're going to hear it because in the times of the pandemic, the studios are not available and we're recording from home. <laughs> yeah. So in terms of starting off on a big topic, definitely if you don't want to, we're not going to talk about violence specifically but we're talking about it generally um but if you want to reach out talk to your friends about anything that this brings for you definitely do that um so in terms of violence in lgbtiq relationships it's the limited stats on it is it's around a third of relationships pretty similar to straight relationships um what what are the contributors to this yeah, that's a really big question, and I think um, the contributors are many, but one way that I guess through work and conversations I've had with other people who work in the either work in the LGBTIQ family violence space or who do um, transformative justice and transformative justice adjacent um, works and workshops, um, including like through Undercurrent, I've sort of come to understand a major contributor to 
family violence and relationship violence in all communities, including for people who are queer, trans, um, to be the part of the systems and structures and ways in the world that we learn to be in relationship with one another and gain power um, and control through um, power over or through domination. Um, obviously, this is like reflected in structural ways, but I think there's a lot of ways that we learn this in interpersonal um, relationships. And there's a lot of things that contribute to that, things like victim blaming um, and a lot of other sort of, I guess, ways that we learn to um, dehumanise people. Yeah. Mm. It's yeah. a big, it's not, I'm not going to have the, yeah, the answer to that question in a neat bundle, but that's generally where I sit with it. Yeah. Yeah. And we won't be able to go into it for hours that many people could go into it and you could to unpack that. Um, but yeah. And it also sort of raises some of the myths you're like, it was raising for me your answer to some of the myths around um, violence in LGBTIQ plus relationships because it's not seen as, um, I guess it's not as visible in the mainstream and there's dangerous myths around it being lesser because it doesn't in involve the stereotypical understanding of how relationships are in terms of heteronormative straight relationships. Can you talk about some of the myths around abuse that you encounter in the work you do? Totally. Um, so I think there's a lot of myths that I wouldn't say are just in the work that I do with LGBTQ people who might be experiencing violence um, or causing harm, but they are maybe more prevalent and that's things like you said um it being seen as lesser so like less um it's often like not talked about so it's kind of invisibilized and it's uh sometimes treated as less of a big deal or like less of a serious um risk to people's safety well-being life um it's which i guess means that it's minimized so that's one myth that it's not really happening that much um that generally like queer relationships are um gen generally you know um don't have the same problems as like heterosexual relationships or whatever which obviously um doesn't encompass a lot of different types of relationships that might fall under the lgbtq mm. giant an acronym that's hugely problematic yeah. um and another myth yeah is the idea that it's mutual or that it's going both ways so uh if you kind of understand uh, i guess uh, the way that i understand abuse and family violence to be something um where you know one person i guess gets access is power and control or like coercion to limit someone's options or to cause harm. Um, the idea that it's mutual is this myth that's actually quite prevalent uh, to, I guess, say that, you know, it might come out in ways that people talk about relationships just being toxic or uh, people just being as bad as each other, um, that they are just um, really both really traumatic in a relationship. Um, it might also come out in ways where uh, violence is mutualized and sometimes this is like really associated with bio uh, we, it, sorry violence is min minimized and it's like sometimes associated on these like essentialist ideas about bodies and what um you know what uh, this idea that people are on an even playing field if they're like both of the same gender and things like that um and how that then is linked to people taking it less seriously because there's like they perceive there to be less of a threat of physical harm um and that's yeah not, not the case <laughs> um i think also that uh, uh this is a myth that again is um 
uh, across the board, but like the idea that violence um, that someone might be doing in resistance to like abuse they're experiencing. So uh, without getting too specific, you know, someone who's maybe experiencing uh, abuse from a partner and then, you know, reacts in self-defense in a particular way that's seen as really violent or that's seen, uh, or there might be like, you know, criminalized in some way um is is the idea that that resistive violence is perceived as an actual harm as well is uh as opposed to kind of a resistance to this pattern of power and control and abuse that's going on is another myth i guess there's there's probably loads more but i think mm-hmm. this is a general idea yeah that it's it's minimized and neutralized is something that comes out a lot in a lot of the responses to violence that we see um violence is experienced by lgbtq communities mm. and i guess yeah in the mainstream the police are seen as the people to go to and we know uh maybe less than australia around stats around this but we know that police commonly don't understand our dynamics and they commonly criminalize the survivor who's resisting violence from the person that's causing harm to them but we mm. might get on to police a bit further down yeah um in this interview but sort of talking now about survivor support in the pandemic so we have the stay-at-home restrictions which does potentially amplify people going um people in circumstances with their partner or their family and yeah, they're experiencing like a lot of the ways they were dealing with their situation, being in an abusive relationship may have been, um, yeah, a lot of things might have been cut off in terms of support and things. Mm-hmm. So, and so what sort of thoughts do you have around this and what sort of things, resources are there out there on survivor support in these times? Yeah, I think um, in at the start in March and April, uh, when people kind of think of support for family violence, um, some or a lot of people might think of family violence services. They might even think of like the police or getting an intervention order or something like that. And I think at the start of the pandemic, what we saw was a lot of services and those types of responses having to pull back the type of work that they were doing um, so that they weren't doing work in person, they weren't maybe doing outreach, they weren't maybe running in-person behaviour change groups where someone who was causing harm could attend and, you know, leaving their partner to potentially have a moment of respite or to check in with a counsellor or something. And a lot of things were moving to online um, and via telephone. So that was, like, one thing that I guess... Um, I saw happening as a response to the pandemic. Um, And at the same time, there was this, uh, I guess, like this acknowledgement of the limits of the service system in that situation and how full on that would have felt for maybe a lot of people who were experiencing harm um, and family violence that were relying on those services or relying on attending appointments or check-ins and things like that. Um, But also at the same time, what I saw was like a huge emerging discussion about other ways that people have been supporting those that experience violence uh, without services and without, um, say, maybe using, utilising the police And there was also this acknowledgement from some people that this is actually something, (laughs) isolation, um, monitoring of movement, um, restriction of movement, this is something that people who experience family violence may have been experiencing in various degrees prior to COVID. Mm. And for some people, not much would change. And for others, like obviously COVID would exacerbate and impact that as well. So I, I was sort of seeing both things, this both this like, um, the state sort of pulling back and maybe even res- relying more on, you know, call the police if you're in an emergency and get out or something. Um, as a, And then at the same time, seeing people talking a lot more about what are some like creative ways or what are some ways that communities who haven't been able to rely on the service system um, or have been like, you know, have a complicated relationship to it 
have been doing support and safety planning work. So yeah, one one resource that was developed uh, with a bunch of people that was, um, uh, I guess, it's downloadable on the Undercurrent website, and I'm sure Iris, you can like provide the link, was the support and safety planning during COVID-19, a community resource. And I guess it just provided some information and some like frameworks and ideas about what sort of support and safety planning sort of is and what it might look like and ways to make it um, to do that in partnership with the person who's experiencing harm. Um, so in ways that I guess don't cause uh, further risk or harm or, or take matters into your own hands and things like that. So um, those were a few things that I saw happening in response specifically to like family violence. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for providing um, that link. And I will provide that in the show notes on the Queering the Air page on three, uh, 3cr.org.au. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. And sort of moving from there to a bit about not-for-profits. So mm-hmm. so to introduce this subject, in the early 2000s, um, based on, I guess, like many decades of experiences, I guess um, there was a book published, The Revolution Will Not Be Funded, pretty much written by a um, bunch of women of colour, feminist, sort of influenced peoples. Really interesting book. Check that out. And it was about the not... And they sort of talked about the not non-profit industrial complex. And, yeah, we're seeing this sort of politics actually become a bit more topical lately. But I'll get into that mm. late, um, later. Um and Andrea Ritchie, who's a black queer fem- feminist in the US, um, in a video, Queer Dreams and Nonprofit Blues, um, on YouTube, sort of talked about, actually, no, I think it might have been a different video, but anyway, I can provide mm-hmm. that link. Yeah, she talked about LGBTI, the LGBTI anti-violence movement making the same mistakes as the anti-violence music anti-domestic violence or anti-sexual violence movement made, which was like focusing on access to professionalized services mm-hmm. when people experience violence um, and not focusing on sort of increased carceral laws, like locking up more people, more policing, more police, more prison, prison expansion, like harsher punishment for, um, for who the state deems criminal and recognizes criminal and, yeah, sort of not focusing on what are the causes of violence and how to stop violence before it happens. Mm-hmm. Um, so do you see that sort of happening in terms of a mistake on not seeing LGBTIQ not-for-profits in their limitations and seeing them as the answer to what are really deeply rooted causes of violence? Yeah, I definitely I think that that's a really... Um, pertinent and important uh like critique and question and consideration about what will be happening in the lgbtq family violence space it's a space that recently has been getting more funding and then previously before which is something that did happen i guess in the for want of a better term mainstream like family violence um organization space and a lot of people who uh, have been doing anti-violence work, perhaps that um, people who are doing anti-violence work that maybe are like um, specifically like black and brown communities, First Nations communities, LGBTQ people who haven't been able to rely on state responses to family violence and partner violence um, have, I guess, critiqued the ways in which that professionalization and bureaucratization, um, the impacts that that has had on both like shifting the focus from this idea of um, what would it look like and what skills do we need and what um, tools do we need to deal to first of all, um, like challenge and prevent and educate people around violence and respectful relationships um, to this other focus that's more in line with like a individual response and like a carceral punishment response. 
um i think there's like in um a, a zine that was if you yeah a zine that was published i just like to read a little bit from a zine mm-hmm. that was published uh put together by um Maryam Carver who does a lot of stuff in the like transformative justice and abolition space um is i think the director of project nia and like a bunch of other stuff I won't list it all. I don't know it all. Um, and it was an open letter to the anti-rape movement that um, that Mariam like kind of republished. That was published, I guess, a while ago um, during the seventies. And by um, by what was it? Um, the Santa Cruz Women Against Rape in nineteen seventy-seven. So. Um, it's kind of uh, this is all, all the stuff that was being brought up at the time. I guess to the about the anti-violence movement and there's and I think it's really relevant when thinking about what might be happening in the LGBTQ space now as well. Um, so there's just one quote from Andrea Smith in the zine um, when it's talking about how um, there were movie the the origins of the kind of anti-rape movement emerged mainly out of um, sort of women who were actually suspicious of relying on state responses and kind of saw state responses and police responses to domestic violence as being um, not helpful or sometimes causing further harm or not taking it seriously or something. Um, But then that sort of changed over time. And so um, Andrea Smith um, provides some context and I'll just read out the quote. So for the anti-violence movement, the shift towards bureaucracy bureaucratization coincided with the influx of federal and state dollars into anti-violence programs, particularly with the uh, Violence Against Women Act. Um, This is obviously US-based anti-violence groups that then began to shift their focus from anti-violence organizing to anti-violence support services with the restrictions that federal monies often placed on the type of work anti-violence groups can do, their work became state-friendly, such as calling for increased criminalization of domestic and sexual violence rather than state-resistant, such as violence prevention initiatives or alternatives to incarceration. And I just wanted to read that because it, yeah, can weigh more eloquently than I say, um, I guess summarise this idea of where the focus is at the moment and what kind of responses um, are occurring and and the potential for like, yeah, peer-led um, grassroots responses to do actual really genuine violence prevention initiatives and alternatives to incarceration versus this desire by sometimes like uh, uh, non-profits or uh, government funders to see the idea of taking family violence seriously in LGBTIQ communities is um, often equated with a state response, that that's the most serious way, you know, you can respond to it as opposed to that being seen as a problematic response to family violence. Mm. Yeah, um, I guess we've seen like the con- we're seeing the consequences of a reliance on the state, and I guess I would suggest like a more like emergence of respectability politics, particularly um, like white class class privileged queers, um, in terms of relying on the state and being uncritical of the state, and that's played out with the public housing towers in terms of that being turned into detention, and we heard from someone via, um, we heard from many interviewing Karen on Satellite Skies that was played on a previous Queering the Air program about um, that and also check out the rest of the 3CR programs like that have covered that, a lot of them. Um, Diaspora Blues is one of them. Um, yeah, so it's like we're seeing the public and a lot of the queer, white queer public being on board this sort of like carceral politics and we see that in a not-for-profit space in terms of mandatory, the, require, the limitations of not-for-profit around mandatory reporting, around not having policies against calling the, the police on people without consent. And we, we know we've seen police shootings with people with mental illnesses, people, um, black people, indigenous people, a lot of people in the margins, a lot of like policing there. And I suppose... Yeah, I guess, I guess that's what's made invisible about the not-for-profit 
the reliance on that is the state violence is, is sort of disappeared. Um, yeah, and do you sort of, moving to a question, yeah, do you, is it an irony for you in a not-for-profit space that um, there's, there's this talk about anti-violence and yet a lot of violence is just completely made invisible and... And I guess drawing on the critique of the not-for-profit industrial complex, there's also hierarchies in the workplace that, yeah, don't lend themselves to, like, community work. They're more pretty top-down workplaces. Yeah, I think um, something uh, that a lot of... um probably the links that we're going to be um that you're going to be posting or some of the authors that or um, like not just authors like activists um authors community organizers that we're referencing um talk about is the ways in which i guess services mental health response nonprofits sometimes focus on these issues as like individual support issues as opposed to the ways in which they're part of like structures of oppression ways in which other you know other things that are that are happening that that cause harm on a structural level contribute to um are not the only you know reason behind but contribute to widespread family violence and partner violence so that's one i think this sort of like individualized response um, and the focus on like that service, individual service provision to support people as opposed to like political organizing or um, yeah, like the, some of the, you know, uh, I guess pre- prevention uh, work or the like building relationship skills work um, is is part of it. And then the, I think within that, there's also this like lack of accountability or um, acknowledgement or self-awareness for the ways in which as an organization you are reinforcing some t- you are reinforcing like coercion or those systems of oppression that we're all um, actually influenced by uh, to varying degrees and and the ways in which that might be happening both like within organizations as well as um, might be happening to people accessing services so like for example something like one example um, it is like certain compliance that's required of people who might be accessing a service. So, um, you know, there's certain uh, curfews at some refuges. I mean, we, we, we're talking about like people, um, LGBTQ people, there isn't really even a crisis response that's like specific for LGBTQ people at all. So that's like a huge problem. But like when we're looking at like, you know, refuges, if you don't make, um, often like not some refugees that have curfews if like a woman's not back there by that time it's like a way it's like a way that they it's like used to i guess move that person on to free up a space at the refuge so there's like heaps of different examples of um i guess the way in which these sort of like arbitrary compliance rules that are really sometimes difficult for people to um to to do or even like you know rules um i guess like you know uh, the ways in which if say someone gets an intervention order and then they have nowhere to really go and then the person who's they might go back to the person who's causing them harm um and the ways in which maybe their case is taken less seriously because of that for example so i guess uh, there are lots of ways which i feel like it doesn't consider like the broader like structures that might impact someone's like ability to like access support um and to do certain actions that like comply with this system that's actually really difficult and re-traumatizing for people um is is one yeah is one way and then yeah of course like in organizations like anywhere there's um like hierarchical structures that make it really difficult for staff to speak truth to power and sometimes what people who are at the top of organizations like are doing might not actually be in line with what people um in who are like most marginalized or most targeted by the state response uh need when they're accessing services so i think yeah there's it's like a really obviously a huge conversation but those are just some thoughts on the question that you asked 
Mm, yeah, and in listening to you uh, talk about that, yeah, I was thinking about housing and you're mentioning refuges, yeah, and that was bringing up to me how, yeah, like so many of those places are just exclusionary if you, like, are a drug user or a sex worker or you're not neurotypical um, mm-hmm. or disabled, cis, um, and it really goes through how... Also linking things to housing was what I was thinking about in terms of there's over 80,000 people on the public housing waiting list, mm-hmm. millions of people in precarity in terms of housing and how if people had more resources around housing, people would have more options in terms of violence in, re- in relationships at home. And I think also like, I guess part of um, the ways in which the, um, the that bureaucratization and professionalization and like legislation the focus on legislation around um intimate partner and family violence what that means for actions that might be i think there's there's been a lot of people talking about what that means for things that survivors might do that are actually um like illegal or like might go against a certain thing that's um legislation like it's really hard to just set up a house like i mean i'm just thinking something i think about (laughs) is like marshall p johnson and sylvia rivera setting up like star house from doing sex work like at night and like you know and then running this like youth hostel like you know space for like like people who would be seriously violence or who are homeless or trans like during the day like someone could do that now but actually it's the the i guess the whole like kind of compliance with what's seen as like this like you know rules and legislation or whatever um, makes it really difficult for stuff like that to happen and like these conversations have been happening like within and and outside of the sector for a really long time there's like no actual crisis response that's like specifically lgbtiq um affirmative or whatever uh is really like is like a really big deal um and it's really linked to like i guess funding and then like what it's linked to like not a need it's like linked to like a state response and like it's not linked to like actually like something that's been um you know like that people would perhaps be like useful support for people who were experiencing violence so that's just something i always think about like the work that people have done outside of those systems and like obviously they're still doing now but the ways in which like some of that stuff is difficult to do or is criminalized because it doesn't you know necessarily like fit in um with like a certain eligibility criteria or certain like gatekeeping that happens in services all the time Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Queer and trans people have figured out strategies of how to support each other, how to like do community accountability without the state. And that's not necessarily always very visible when we just focus on not for profit. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's Voice of Dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. Well, brothers and sisters, what a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMARC. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 250 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminuaya Mōbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. You're listening to Queering the Air on 3CR Community Radio. I'm your host, Iris Lee. You've been listening to an interview 
with Petro Bogoyevich. Stay tuned for more. And also the other thing I was thinking about is um, like limitations of social work as a profession, as you're saying, there's things that you potentially would be disqualified as a social worker, but would be like a good thing to do to support someone in a role, but they're not allowed. You're not allowed to do that. Totally. I mean, you know, I think um, one thing that uh, I guess a lot of people who talk about, um, who do either transforming justice community organising or abolitionist community organising or a bunch of different stuff out of the, like, huge Black Lives Matter protests and actions that continue um, to happen was this um court there was like this call for like social workers instead of police and then there was this like sort of also this critique of um you know uh like policing by another name like in what ways do we like as individuals as well as like also social workers and like organizations like what in what ways do do they and we like police each other and police like individuals and communities um and and how um i guess that links to the type of responses that are offered and the type of interventions that are offered like you know if you're working on a family violence helpline like there's nowhere for like there's nowhere actually safe for like you know a trans woman who's experiencing violence or a trans person who's experiencing violence who's like non-binary to like access um like uh what's it called crisis accommodation um you know but i can't offer hey there's like a spare room in my friend's house or like hey do, do you know what i mean like mm-hmm. you can't like offer these things that are like oh you know do you know this space like here's a potential like space to do this thing or it's like hey why like you know like there's so many ways that i guess like community responses could occur differently um, and do happen differently, like even with like fundraisers for people who are experiencing violence and who need housing or things like that, that you see pop up that just is like not part of the response. And, and in some ways, you know, it sometimes shifts the response to something else. Like you mentioned earlier, mandatory reporting and like all this stuff is really complicated. I don't want to like say that like this is like, let's just like not have this and like have this because I think a big part of transformative justice is like the idea that, um, you know, there's not like one response that's like one size fits all. That's that's like a lie that's been created by the system, you know. So, um, but like with mandatory reporting and the idea of like having to report in situations where, um, you know, what what might that mean? Like for the child, and like you know, sometimes there's situations where someone's in immediate harm. Um, and sometimes they're maybe not in immediate harm, but you still have to report. And what does that mean also for like queer and trans children? Like it's really like, um, you know, like it's it's really like unclear and like from like anecdotal like knowledge, it's like really um, doesn't appear that like there is safety in a response through services like that when when children are removed from from. Um, other situations doesn't like guarantee that the new situation is going to be safe and it's yeah it's really complicated but I think there's a lot of yeah there's a lot of ways in which it's, it limits um, responses and interventions to just try and fit within this like pastoral system of response that doesn't always meet people where they're at or doesn't yeah that sometimes further um, targets or marginalizes people. Mm, yeah for sure there's definitely a lot of nuances and messiness in terms of how it how these things play out in their detail and i guess like yeah, yeah what a, a lot of what the not-for-profit industrial complex stuff like critique is about is like moving on like from the better not-for-profits the idea of like is that that's also an important terrain where people are resisting in terms of like pointing out hypocrisy hypocrisy and not-for-profits um yeah, and at the same time as wanting to like be active in social movements to dismantle systems that create violence and are at the root cause of violence. And in thinking of that, there's been been the emergence of um, an anonymous in, like Instagram account talking about not mm. the not-for-profit industrial complex on mm. Instagram called holding at holding accountable. And I guess that's really highlighting a lot of the things people go through, mm. particularly 
there's a lot of stories on there um of people of color resisting white supremacy and white leaders in not-for-profits who really shouldn't be there and just perpetuating white supremacy yeah um but yeah yeah no that i think like so many stories that i've um people have been sharing that have just like in different ways like happen at so many different organizations and i and it's it's also really difficult for people to talk about this stuff because i think that like sometimes people do actually go through a complaints process or through like various processes within the organization to try and um you know i guess like offer this option of accountability or critique or change or transformation but often that's you know there was that often that's like either silence through mechanisms of the system like you know people being like uh, i guess like through legal measures or through people just quitting because they're really fucking burnt out and exhausted it's not worth changing this place you know or it's like not worth um it's impossible to change like here because the management is so entrenched in a certain like um oppressive structure or whatever um or you know people also just like need to pay rent and like pay bills and it's really difficult to um yeah it's like it's so complicated but i think it's like really interesting that that instagram has like popped up and um i think like it's like something that's like i guess a an a issue across like the it, it's like, like a complex <laughs> like i think the yeah the the book like the revolution won't be funded beyond the non-profit industrial complex talks about it really well about the ways in which like all organizations are sort of complicit to a degree to this carceral response and it doesn't mean that there aren't like amazing abolitionists that maybe some organizations but i think they're you know like the exception rather than the norm and i think it can be really yeah difficult for people and specifically like you know like um women of color or like lgbtq people in organizations are often like you, you can really see the difference in the ways that like critique from them is like responded to by um yeah by like organizational you know um like people in the organization's power who are white um and versus like other people and like what does it mean to like really i guess like critically like um like have a transformative like work towards transformative change in an organization can be really difficult yeah mm. Yeah, so many tensions when, yeah, you want things to be immediately better in the now, but also want to ultimately dismantle things as they are in the present to dismantle the systemic yeah. oppressions. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, knowing all the limitations of living in, like, colonialism, settler colonial Australia and capitalism, and, yeah, knowing, like, any wins is only going to be a small one um, unless there's big systemic change, but also not wanting to, yeah, not wanting like myself to let go of my complicity in that and wanting to work from where things are at. Yeah. Mm. I think, um, yeah, I think like some, yeah, I, I feel like there's like one chapter in that book, The Revolution Won't Be Funded, that just like ask a series of really important questions about like, I think, you know, also, like, going as someone who, like, works in the field as well as, like, does stuff that's, like, maybe opposite to, like, the sector, I think, like, just really, like, questioning in what ways do, you like, you uphold these systems or, like, do you reflect or, like, mirror these systems of, uh, like, oppression and at that actually impacts people trying to, like, access the service. And, and I think, like, really, like, yeah, I guess there's a lot of, like, people who ask really important questions. Um, there was one question that, like, has stuck with me by the author of Prism, one of the authors of Prism by another name, um, Maya Shenhua. 
um, that was like, what are you doing in your work that's facilitating, that's actually, what's actually facilitating safety and what's just facilitating control? And the idea of like, what's you actually deciding what someone else's liberation is versus like, what's like working in partnership with someone to support them or to like, you know, like, um, support them to access things that they need or, you know, whatever. And I just think it's, like, really important to ask that question as a worker, like, as a harm minimization way, while also, like, recognising that, like, the system is limited in its capacity to, like, actually affect transformative change, I think. Three CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, and that book, Maya Chenoir and Victoria Law, Prison by Any Other Name, The Harmful Consequences of Popular Reforms. I might check that out. At its, I think it's ready on my reading list. Um, yeah, so in terms of switching a bit to the pandemic, um, what does like collective care and community look like for you in these times of I guess isolation and stay at home sort of um restrictions Mm. sometimes I feel like I don't know and sometimes I feel like I really know what that looks like and I think that's just sometimes where you're at like mentally and emotionally during this pandemic at the moment I'm very much sitting in I don't know what that looks like and then I remember, like, the ways in which people do that all the time and have been doing that long before. Like, mm-hmm. I think, yeah, I think, like, you know, people who are doing, like, really, like, ongoing mutual aid stuff that's, like, um, yeah, is really important because it is, like, really important to, um, like, redistribute things that are, like, you know material needs things that people like actually need that like they're struggling that like have people are struggling to access but also like i guess just the ways in which like you look out like for each other um even when like you know distance is like where yeah when socially distancing is a thing i think like for a bunch of different reasons it's like hard to do online stuff but also a lot of people like just used to doing it because that's the only space that they've had access to and I think um it's it's like interesting to think about how we can like increase our sort of skills or like time or like focus on on yeah I guess what collective care can look like when you might not be able to pop over to someone's house and ways that you can provide emotional like support or like check in with each other or yeah. So I think my answer is a bit um, more in the weird stage at the moment because of my mental space, but there's, there's lots of people who talk about this. I feel like, yeah, Julia um, Bach has written a lot of articles about it. Um, Leah um, Lakshmi Piazza um, has written, um, yeah, like the care work. I would really like recommend people read that and just engage in disability justice like work by a bunch of other people as well. Um, Yeah, yeah, that's my incomplete answer to that question. Yeah, for sure, definitely. Um, yeah, too often, um, left out of conversations and disability justice, people, uh, disabled people are supporting each other, showing the ways to do community care, um, in circumstances that able-bodied people don't, can ever, not, can never understand, but... Mm in terms of that personal experience, but definitely can learn from prioritizing that sort of care and yeah, changing, making things much more accessible, changing the pace of how we do things. Yeah. And so, yeah. And yeah. And I guess like also this idea of like what, you know, the different, I think people have different access to 
different things that like keeps you going and like might be a way of dealing with stuff like you know I fucking love going to a party but last time I went to a party was in March for Mardi Gras and I came and I was sick for all of March you know so like I know there's all these things that I guess there's like ways that like people um yeah who like uh you know sick or disabled have had to like learn to support each other and deal with stuff that maybe like that because of the you know the the like because of like inaccessibility and this like lack of focus um on what like yeah on people's like individual needs or like collective needs or whatever um has made it a lot of spaces just like not they're like not like able to access in this way that like maybe some people who don't have um the like same like access um like issues because of ableism and stuff like yeah haven't had to think about and and it's just like you know like there are 700 cases today and i don't know just like this is like what does it mean to like you know there's going to be people who are asymptomatic but i was just thinking today like what does it mean for people who aren't going to be asymptomatic and for people who are going to end up in hospital and for people who you know are trans are going to end up in hospital without their like best mate able to bring them like microwave broccoli um speaking from experience um and gonna have to like what how are we going to support each other when like the shit hits the fan and what might that look like and how are we going to, you know, prioritise, I guess, like, care for people who, like, aren't going to get over COVID in a month or something. Yeah. Anyway, lots of things to think about. Mm, yeah. It's, yeah, it's really concerning. And just thinking about, yeah, hospitals are a site of inadequate care for so many people, chronically ill and disabled people, mm-hmm. trans people, people of colour. And, yeah, the ongoing... Um, yeah, there's a lot of focus on deaths, but the like mm. the coronavirus will have ongoing effects for a lot of people as well. Yeah. In terms of yeah, chronic illnesses and stuff like that. Um so in terms of so closing this out, is there anything you've been reading, watching listening to that you'd want to just mention, shout out to? Yeah, there's like a thousand things. Um, So I guess um, one thing that I I think, yeah, one video that was shared with me that I, I sort of thought did a really interesting job at like, it's called prison is abuse understanding prisons abuse of power and control and i think like yeah it did a really um it was really awesome to hear um the people in the video talk about how incarceration replicates power and control dynamics dynamics in abusive relationships um and i think that idea of like yeah a lot of the ways that sometimes we talk about like systems and service responses sometimes forgets that like at the heart of this is like human relationships with each other or like people in relationship with each other and like what it means for someone who you know might be a survivor of violence who's like criminalized and then like in prison and like what it might mean for these responses um for someone you know who's either caused harm or who has like um experienced harm in these like responses that are very traumatizing and in what ways do these responses actually replicate these experiences of abuse? Like, because in, in your, like, body and your emotions and your mind and everything when you're experiencing it, that's what, like, a lot of these responses do. They, they like, re- replicate or trigger or, like, you know, can be re-traumatizing for people. So, yeah, I guess I'll just, like, that's that's on YouTube, that video. Um, I'm really interested in reading Prisons by Another Name, and I've just started... Yeah, there's a few, there's, like, a lot of... I've just started reading again after, like, having a bit of a drought with, like, not being able to finish a book for a while. So, yeah. There's a lot of stuff out there at the moment on, like, um, heaps of different platforms, which is cool. Yeah, cool. Awesome. Um, And the Abolition and Transformative Justice Centre have some, like, 
forum panel things on incarceration and abolition, um, which I think might be available at, at their Facebook page. And if it is, I'll link it in the show notes. So that's something to check out for listeners who might be interested in that. Another thing I wanted to shout out to was, yeah, a thing that we're both involved in, but it's just mm-hmm. like a, like one of the like thousands of mutual aged things going on at the moment. One of them's um, IRL info shops, like grocery, grocery, grocery delivery thing. And it's just mm-hmm. basically just collecting donations and distributing food and groceries to a whole bunch of households who don't really have those resources. Yeah. Yeah, and just like there's a lot of yeah, um mutual aid groups that are doing like awesome stuff and it's um, you know, that have just been like started by people and like groups of people and aren't associated with organizations and that stuff costs money and yeah, what well, like obviously, yeah, depending on people who do or don't have money at this time, like I think yeah, putting your support behind that is like really awesome or donating stuff. Um is like a great way to like redistribute what like everyone should have access to. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, definitely another one, the COVID-19 First Nations Black Black Fallen Mutual Aid Chuffed link. I'll give a link out to that, that they're doing really great work. Mm -hmm. First Nations run mutual aid. Um funds group there it's definitely to support and there's yeah so many other things there's rise refugee supporting refugees and exit detainees and the scarlet alliance supporting sex workers who yeah who aren't allowed to work in the pandemic and many don't have access to centrelink because of compliance and reporting and gatekeeping and all the stuff that like you have to say about your life that prevent you from accessing services a good example of yeah yeah so many people just these systems are just intentionally difficult to save themselves money and to just depress and abandon people but anyway um (laughs) that's a bit of a depressing note to end on but yeah, thanks for joining me on Queering the uh, Petra. No worries. Thanks for having me on the air. Was there anything else? Well, this work is really, I think, creative and imperfect, but I, I want it to be, like, deep. I want to, like, try and reflect how, like, I can do this type of, you know, transformative justice work or, like, abolition, like, in my own life, in my own, like, relationships, because I haven't, or obviously, and continue to not, like, in various ways, do things that I think like move towards that work and in some ways like maybe I do but yeah I guess like really I just want to really reflect on like you know myself and like my practice both like at work and not at work and how like it can kind of contribute to that transformative change as opposed to contribute to like upholding this like system that has um yeah that is is not meeting people where they're at um and on their terms you have been listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am on your AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au. And I've been your host, Iris Lee, on this episode of Queering the Air. And you have been listening to an interview with Petra Bogoyevich. And that's all we have time for on this Queering the Air every Sunday, 3 to 4pm. Stay tuned to 3CR Community Radio to listen to Salam Radio Show. And if you'd like to get in contact with us, you can contact us at queeringthear at gmail.com or on our Facebook or Twitter. Bye, everyone. Isolated? Quarantined? Need some essentials but can't leave the house? Or just having a hard time dealing with everything at the moment? Queer Aid NAM is a new mutual aid group of organized volunteers. We're here, we're queer, and we've got your back. Whether or not that's how you identify, nobody should be suffering because capitalism or the state didn't provide what they needed. That's why we're working to strengthen our communities through solidarity. 
put in a request for help and we'll match you with a volunteer in your area who can either pick up groceries or other essentials for you, help you run errands, cook meals for you, or check in with how you're going. If you or someone you know is having a hard time, or if you want to join the volunteer list, find us on queeraidmelbourne.org or search for us via Facebook, COVID-19 Queer Aid Nam Melbourne. So tell your family and your friends, and don't forget your neighbours. That's QueerAidMelbourne.org, a 3CR supporter. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.